Hello, hello. This is Volts for December 20th, 2021. Volts podcast, how the left can suck less at messaging with a not shinker Osario. I'm your host, David Roberts. People involved with politics are obsessed with messaging. What to say and how to say it to sway voters or politicians to their side. Everyone has strong opinions about messaging, but almost everyone's opinions are drawn from their personal experiences, preferences, and priors, which are rarely reliable guides to what works in practice. There are, however, people down in the trenches doing real message testing in the field as part of real grassroots campaigns, like Anat Shinker Osario, head of ASO Communications and author of the book, Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. She helps campaigns communicate for a living, and she discusses the lessons learned from successful campaigns on her podcast, Words to Win By. Shinker Osario is a co-founder of the Race Class Narrative Project, which is developing a coherent response to America's familiar racial dog whistle politics. She has advised several environmental campaigns and done a lot of thinking about the right way to message around climate change, as well as its place in the race class narrative. As longtime readers know, I have a love-hate relationship with the subject of messaging, so I'm happy to dig in with a knot to figure out what we really know about good and bad message testing, the elements of a good message, how to actually get messages to voters, and how to talk about climate change in a compelling way. Without further ado, welcome Anat to Volts. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about messaging. I've got a, <laughs> I've got so much to say on this subject. I've been thinking about it for so long. I want to start with a sort of distinction. So, one side of messaging the side that people think about most often is the sort of choosing what to say, choosing your words, your your slogans, your catchphrases, your your verbiage for your ads, that kind of stuff. Sort of the word selection, you might say. But the other side of messaging is about the infrastructure that allows you to get the messages you've developed to voters. So the sort of spokespeople, the institutions, the media outlets, the social media pages, the civic groups, what, what have you, all the sort of mechanisms that allow those messages to reach their intended audience. And it's always seemed to me that it is on this latter side of messaging where the left is really getting its ass kicked. It just seems like the right has a very robust ecosystem that's very coordinated and very capable if they have a new message, you know, sort of uh, critical theories taking over schools, like they can get that to the ears and eyes of every single conservative in the country, you know, just at will, basically. And and the left, it seems to me to lack that ability. So before we talk about the word selection part, which we will get to, let's talk about the infrastructure part. What can... What does it need to do to build that kind of infrastructure? Does it need its own Fox News? Does it need just a, like a parallel to right-wing media or does it need its own kind of thing? So there are so many ways into this question. First, of course, I agree with you. I mean, 
that's something that I have remarked upon myself frequently. A message that nobody hears is by definition not persuasive. It doesn't matter how fancy your survey or RCT or field test or everything that you did to create that thing. If nobody hears it, it didn't persuade them. And I think that it is too simple a distinction to to put those things in two buckets. And here's why. Part of the problem that we have, and I'm guessing we're going to get to this conversation at some point about popularism and quote unquote mm-hmm. talking about cultural issues versus doing popular things, whatever that means. And I'm happy to say lots of what I think that means. <laughs> we are going um, to get to that. If your base won't carry the message, then the middle isn't going to hear it. Yes, it would be amazing to have an actual functional media that would properly do its job. Yes, it would be amazing to have a left-wing specialized media infrastructure of the size and capability that Fox News and OWN and conservative talk radio and all the rest of it. Yes, those would all be really great things to have and we would be much, much better off. But at a minimum, The things that we do have, which is the knowledge that a message is like a baton that needs to be passed from person to person to person. And if it gets dropped anywhere along the way, it is by definition not persuasive. And so why was it possible for us, for the left, to spread the message, love is love and love makes a family, and with it shift culture, shift perception of gay and lesbian unions, what used to be called gay marriage and is now properly called marriage equality. Why was it possible in city after city and then state after state to spread a message of fight for 15? Why was it possible in the post-election for us to create content with a crackerjack team of designers and artists that said count every vote. And those memes were viewed over a billion with a B times. And that's just a domestic US audience. There are times when we have so-called broken a signal through the noise, despite all of the disadvantages that you point to. And those have been the times when we have actually properly attended to that wording question. And so, again, I don't disagree with your diagnosis. I just think that the way that we resolve this issue actually has to do with the messages that we're putting out, at least partially. Let's talk about how we figure those messages out then. So another one of my (laughs) sort of longstanding beefs with the endless messaging talk that I hear, you know, and I'm mostly coming from a climate perspective is I have frequently read sort of studies and survey groups basically telling me how people react to messages when they see them in isolation, one at a time, in the calm of a focus group or some sort of academic test, you know, sort of been assembled by an academic and read these messages. And, you know, and then they take the different ways that people react to these messages in that context and just sort of vastly over-interpret them regarding what kind of messages might work out in the world. And it, you know, it's sort of pointing out the obvious, but the way people encounter messages in the wild bears no resemblance to that whatsoever. Like when, when people encounter messages in the wild, it's in the midst of the noise and chaos of our modern information system. They get partial messages, you know, and these messages are surrounded often by counter messages from the other side. So 
just the sort of way people encounter and absorb messages in the field, in the real world, seems to me so distant and different from, from the way these focus groups are done that there's just not a lot to learn from the latter about the former. So what I, so what I want to know is how do you messaging experts or testers figure out how a message will perform, not just sort of in isolation, but in the scrum of an actual political fight in the actual world? Yeah, again, I just I feel like you are sort of an audience plant for me, if I may. And you are just like raising up all of my core beefs and things I yell and scream and write and tweet and bang my head against the wall about. So, yes, you're absolutely right. The entire enterprise of what is technically known as in-channel testing, in-channel testing is any kind of empirical test where you are providing stimuli to the respondents and you are asking for their feedback about that stimulus Mm -hmm. or stimuli in the same moment at which they are receiving it. So Mm -hmm. that's a telephone survey, that's an online dial test, even more sophisticated processes like using an RCT, a random control trial and not a sequential survey is still all in channel testing. Same with focus groups. And basically, it's what you say. People have, first of all, you are literally paying them for their attention. That is what you are doing. Providing them a financial incentive to listen to your thing, watch your thing and tell you about your thing. And you have their undivided attention, or at least you have their somewhat undivided attention. Because remember, a lot of this testing is happening digitally, which means that like in the way when people are on, you know, Zoom calls, they also have seven tabs open. So you are (laughs) getting, you're still getting some level of distraction, right? right? Because people are not just listening to you. And the same goes for when they're taking a phone survey. They are also making dinner and yelling at the kids or whatever's going Mm -hmm. on. But yes, it is what you say. So how do we deal with that? The way that we deal with that is that we understand that each tool is useful for its purpose and not for another. And so things like in-channel testing, qualitative and more importantly, quantitative, can be used in order to understand whether one frame is more effective than another, whether one frame is more comprehensible, logical, clear than another. What it can't be used to do is A, determine effect size. Like you can't see an effect size in an in-channel test and say, this moved people eight percentage points and believe that that's actually what's going to happen in the field. That's not true for the reasons that you say. Number two, you can design those tests to actually be closer to the real world by making them legitimate combat tests and having people in the survey exposed to more opposition messaging than our own, which of course is what is happening in the real world, and testing our messages against what the other side is saying. This is one of my 5,700 beefs with a lot of academic research that they do this test tube experiment where they don't expose folks to opposition messages. Mm. Next thing you can do, do you want this level of detail? See, careful what you ask. Sure. You can be a lot smarter about what you are rating the message to do. So all too often in this kind of testing, 
And that's when we're doing message testing, which, by the way, is not what's happening most of the time. What's happening most of the time is that people are doing polling. They are doing research to Mm. take the temperature, not doing research to understand. Forgive me, because I just mean this not in a literal way, just in a metaphorical way. Research to change the temperature, metaphorically speaking. (laughs) (laughs) And that, of course, is the way that the right wing approaches all of this testing. They don't say, let's figure out where people already are on our issues. Something that I say frequently is that it's not the job of a good message to say what is popular. It is the job of a good message to make popular what we need said. And so apropos the example that you offered, When they started their critical race theory attack, and even to today, most people don't know what critical race theory is. They have no idea about it. Yeah, they certainly didn't start by polling and finding out that Virginia parents were sort of natively concerned about critical race theory. Because they weren't. They were like, what is that? Is that like (laughs) the name of a coffee shop? You know, like I, you know, is that like a new kind of NASCAR race? You know, like what, what is that? I'm joking, obviously. They decide where it is they want to take people, and then they use message testing to figure out what is the articulation that is going to be most effective of the path that they have already decided to walk. And so, like I said, they do message testing to try to change the temperature. They don't do testing to take it. So going back to what does that mean when we're doing message testing, it means that instead of asking for facile self-reported ratings like, did you like this message? Did you find it convincing? Which is asking people to have a conscious response about something that is happening unconsciously. Right. Which they may not like... This is one of my beefs about polls and surveys, too. People are not necessarily the best judges of what's going on inside their own heads, right? Uh, They don't necessarily know how they're they're responding. They're not even not necessarily. They are definitively not. People can only (laughs) tell you what they think that they think. Right. Because most of thought, and by most, I really mean almost all of it, is unconscious. So we don't Mm -hmm. actually know why it is that something moves us or doesn't. So what does it mean to structure a better test? It means, for example, to structure a test in which you ask people a pre-question, like, would this make you want to convert the entire electricity grid to solar, even if it meant you had to pay this much more in taxes? And why do we ask that that way? We ask that that way because we don't want it to be a unicorns and rainbows question where people are like, sure, whatever. Right. Do you like good things? Yeah. Like so many so many poll questions are like that. Like, do you like positive things? And people say yes. And then they send out the press release. People love this thing. Right. So you ask a sort of higher bar ask kind of question, and then you expose people in different treatment groups relative to a control that doesn't get any message to a message, a single one. And then you ask them a post question or you don't ask, you do a control and you just ask the hard question after so that you can attribute a difference between the control group that got no ad or that got no message or that got no slogan or whatever it is you're trying to test to the treatment group. And you can say the people in treatment group C who got message C, they were most likely, they had this, you know, however many point shift. So you can just do better research. And then finally, the kind of gold star 
is to do in-field testing, to use mm. in-channel testing to sort of get the lay of the land, understand what is probably best, and then do much better research if you can afford it, because in-field testing is expensive, where instead of asking for people's self-reporting, you actually do something like send 100,000 postcard A to voters in this block and send 100,000 postcard B, and then you actually measure the voter file. You're not asking people, you're checking. Mm -hmm. That seems much more likely to give you good information. Yeah. And people who know what they're doing do a combination of all of those things. Good segue to my next question. And I guess we can use the critical race theory example to, to get at this question too. So it seems to me one of the reasons that they were able to start from nothing, parents having no idea what critical race theory is, to parents freaked out about critical race theory, I mean, in an incredibly short period of time, is that they were not starting from nothing. So the sort of background presumptions of the critical race theory message, which is that blacks are getting unfair advantage, whites are constantly criticized, whites are the most oppressed, you know, or the most sort of discriminated against group in America today. Like they're trying to program your kids to be socialists at school, all that stuff. All that ground has already been laid. That foundation has already been laid through, you know, 40 to 50 years of repetition, basically, of having institutions and politicians and media outlets just say that stuff over and over and over and over and over again. So that when you come along with this sort of new example of that stuff, most of the persuasion jobs is already done. You know, like the parents who have been hearing your stuff all those years are primed to believe this new Thing, this new example. And sort of similarly, like I think back to the, the cap and trade debate in 2009, 2010, you know, all the right had to do was say, oh, this is a tax. And that got them 95% of the way they needed to go because all the background is already in place. The foundation was already in place. <laughs> you know, everybody's been told for 50 years now, taxes are bad, they're unfair, government's incompetent, all that stuff's already in place. So it's pretty easy to just apply it to the next thing. In contrast, (laughs) the left, it seems to me, has not spent the last several decades laying that kind of foundation. There are, as far as I know, no left think tanks or organizations devoted exclusively to telling Americans that government works, government is good. Lots of the things we have in our society are traceable to government. We know how to do things, right? We can have nice things. So because that foundation isn't laid, they're just like starting from scratch every time every with every new messaging battle and this you know in the cap and trade example it's like you know the other side is saying tax and then the left is saying well no you see we got the emissions of x level and then you divide it up into permits and then you can see you can trade the permits but over time the cap on the permits blah blah people tuned out a long time ago total asymmetry there. And it seems to me that that replicates itself over and over and over again in the sense that the right has been doing its foundational messaging about its foundational worldview repetitively over and over again through multiple channels over decades. And the left just isn't doing that. It just approaches every new issue or every new piece of legislation or every new fight from scratch. And it's constantly on the back foot. So my question is, A, do you agree with that diagnosis? And, and B, if so, 
how can that be remedied? Who's, whose job is it, I guess, to be laying that basic foundation beneath, you know, the basic left worldview beneath all the more specific points? Yeah, I definitely agree that that is an exact characterization of what the right has done successfully, and that they basically have one message or very, very, very few messages. Mm -hmm. And what you're describing is essentially the oldest political trick in the book. It is divide in order to conquer. The right wing use of dog whistles, of racially coded speech, not just in this country, I just came home from Brazil. You know, it's Bolsonaro, it's Duterte, it's Orban in Hungary, it's Brexit, Boris Johnson. I lived in Australia, it's the discourse of the right wing there. There's nothing new under the sun, right? Basically, there is one storyline that they have, and it is to pick some other to vilify and to tell aggrieved white people and white men in particular, this is the source of your pain, this is the source of your problem, and here we are going to alleviate it for you. We are going to deliver to you this wonderful vision of a world in which we, quote, make America great. Again, we will take you back to a time when, you know, you were on top of the pecking order, women knew their place, and Black people did too, and so on and so forth. And they accomplish all this magically through the use of this racially coded speech without actually explicitly naming race, thereby maintaining some measure of plausible deniability and, you know, acting affronted that we dare to say that they've somehow made racist remarks when they're like, I never mentioned race. I just talked about illegals. Mm. When, of course, when they talk about, quote, illegal immigrants, what comes to mind is not the Swedish backpacker who has overstayed their visa. <laughs> yes, this is exactly what they've done. It's why critical race theory fits so seamlessly. They just keep remixing the exact same story. And that is why it is so effective. And it is absolutely true. The rest of what you say that the left, you know, we are very, very smart and we're very creative and we like to make a brand new thing for each thing. One of the things. That oh, I, we're so clever. We're all, all of us all are of us so clever. clever and we're all very special, special <laughs> orchids and we bloom under the exact perfect condition. Way, way too independent minded to ever just go around repeating what other people say. Goodness, no. Yes, there is an entire thing I call not invented here syndrome. And partly that is structural. So when you look at anything that used to be a mass movement, the labor movement, the women's movement, civil rights, that has gone through the maturation process that all of these things go through and become professional organizations, the survival of professional organizations and I don't want to use any one example because it sounds like I'm just impugning that sector when this is just part and parcel of the architecture. If you're going to be a Sierra Club, if you're going to be a World Wildlife Foundation, if you're going to be a National Resources Defense Council, et cetera, et cetera, if you're going to be a Planned Parenthood, a NARAL, a National Women's Law Center, you need to have your own message. You need to have your own branding. You need to have your own campaign. Otherwise, what are you showing to your funders to say, look what we did. This is what we did this year. This is what we did this quarter. This is why you should give us more money. And responsible nonprofit executives want to pay their employees salaries. That is not a bad thing to want to do. That is, you should want to be able to pay the people that work at your institution. And so the incentive is against 
having an echo chamber. There is a financial incentive on the left towards this cacophony of differentiated mm-hmm. messaging, which is completely and totally anathema to persuasion. It's anathema to mobilization. And it is a visible contrast to how things used to be when we didn't have professionalized organizations. We had, you know, a women's movement in which kind of undifferentiated people were in the streets all chanting a similar thing, just to take one for instance. But 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 the right has professional organizations, but does not seem to have this problem. So why what is what is the difference between our billionaires and their billionaires? Their billionaires cut checks for general operating. The end. I mean, there are so many ironies. It is a nested set of ironies that they believe in this highly competitive, highly individualistic, highly unconnected worldview. And yet the way that they actually operate in political space is through an incredibly clustered and incredibly pro-social and incredibly collective endeavor. And so the way that organizations, think tanks, spokespeople, et cetera, are funded on the right is that they are given money to just do their thing. And they actually are not required to produce justifications. I mean, you know, I have 700,000 million critiques and one of them is of progressive philanthropy. Philanthropy is at its core. If you're giving people money that is supposed to be about the redistribution of power, Otherwise, it is meaningless. And if you give people money and you are still saying to them, well, how did you spend my money? What did you do? What was the outcome? What was the output? What were you planning? What, you know, what was this accounted for? That's no different to me giving you a sweater for your birthday. And every time I see you being like, why aren't you wearing my sweater? My sweater would look <laughs> so much better than what you're wearing. Why are you wearing that thing? That's not a gift. If I am asking you endless questions, you're either giving away your money and therefore your power, or you are simply pretending and still wanting to retain your power by asking endless questions and not actually allowing the work to get done. So that is like my giant diatribe. Mm. Now, to your actual question, you know, who is doing on this, this on the left? Who is responsible for this, et cetera? Obviously, I am not objective. So take this with a grain of whatever you would like to eat. But there are examples. There are campaigns where we have successfully done this. Let me just start with one. In 2018, after having done a giant body of research that we call the race class narrative, which was created in part and in partnership with a legal scholar named Ian Haney Lopez, who literally wrote the book Dog Whistle Politics, who's one of the originators of this idea. So we did this giant messaging project, which we have since implemented in many places, starting most robustly with Minnesota in 2018, with a campaign that we named Greater Than Fear. And as part of Greater Than Fear, we had a Greater Than Fear script about taxes. We had a Greater Than Fear script about public education. We had a Greater Than Fear script about driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants, solar panel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what that meant was that not only did we have Greater Than Fear posters and memes and social media channels and ads organizers who were going door to door during that midterm campaign, they were echoing each other. And Mm. it 
was successful enough that the politicians in the state, Tim Walls, who was running for governor and now is governor, the two senators who were running, folks at the state level, they actually adopted that messaging. And several of them had a closing get out the vote tour, which they named their greater than fear get out the vote. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, there are times we've done that. We've done that with the fight for 15. We've done that with love is love and love makes a family. We've done it with red for ed, the teacher strikes that, you know, the educator strikes, pardon, that swept in a wave in 2018. There are times that we have done this. It's not that we never have. And when we have done it, it has been because organizations, unions, civil society, to the extent that it is, you know, legally permissible, obviously not across the firewall, candidates, parties, etc., have pre-agreed that the most important thing is that we need to be able to break a signal through the noise, and they have suspended ego, and they have gotten funders to recognize that this is incredibly important. We did the same thing in the post-election. The message was count every vote, count every vote, count every vote, count every vote, instead of saying, let's call it a coup, or let's talk about Trump, or let's talk about Mm -hmm. authoritarianism. And then the message shifted to voters decided. And that seems like an incredibly facile and simple thing. It was actually incredibly well-structured, incredibly well-coordinated and executed. And that message got across. It seems like then a sane movement, or let's say a sane billionaire, would be seeking such successes and then trying to fund the organizations behind them so that they can build on those successes in the future and repeat those same narratives in other contexts to the point that those basic narratives become very familiar. That just doesn't seem to be happening. I agree with you. Although you might want to rethink the phrase sane billionaire. Cause like, is that really a thing? I don't know that that's a thing. I don't think. I mean, ours, ours have a different kind of insanity than theirs, I guess. Ours are the wrong kind of insane. Well, but also, you know, how does one become a billionaire, which is like an entire separate conversation, right? Like there is no innocence in capitalism. So whatever, like that aside, I mean, I only know what I know and what I've done and what I'm fighting to do more of. And it's the reason why I emphasize so much campaigns that we have won and how we have won them. And it is doing exactly what you have described. It is having a simple, coherent message that recognizes that politics isn't solitaire and that messages don't land in a vacuum. People are hearing relentlessly from the opposition. If we're not attending to what they're saying, then our message isn't going to work. The message has to be engaging to the base. But the answer, at least from my vantage point, about, you know, why aren't people doing this is because there is still a very live debate, unfortunately, going on in left and left of center parties, again, not just in the US, but I also work abroad, around what it is that works. And there is a level of fear and people clinging by the vestiges of barely their fingernails to what little we have, what little gains we've made, and so on and so forth. And when people are acting from a place of fear, their behavior is never really that great. And so people are terrified 
to try new things. And the truth of the matter, and wow, am I getting myself in trouble? This is, I should not be having these conversations on like the Friday before, you know, we're all trying to get out of work and into holiday. A lot of what passes for polling and message testing on the left is the world's most expensive form of copy editing. And people are essentially testing ECRU against Off-White against Eggshell. They're testing a series of messages which are largely the same argument, but with tiny wordsmithing details. And then it's a garbage in, garbage out problem. You know, message D or message E or message whatever is marginally better but it's really not that distinct from the other ones because people are not considering what is the range of ways we could possibly make that argument. And the reason for that, which you already know, is because the kinds of solutions that you advocate, that I advocate, the kind of world that we know that we need is not actually the kind of world that a lot of people who are in charge presently <laughs> actually <laughs> want. And so it is challenging to do projects, to do testing, to develop messaging that makes a impassioned, interesting, engaging, humorous, base mobilizing case for true economic prosperity, for a livable planet, for an end to poisoning ourselves voluntarily in order to make a handful of billionaires richer. People don't want to do that because the basic truth of the left is that we have to beg the master for money to buy tools to take down his house. <laughs> that is uh, very well put. So let's talk then in the spirit of these sort of thinking through these sort of foundational left messages that can sort of undergird more specific case by case messages. You refer to the cl the race class narrative, and that's become a big thing in recent years. So maybe just explain here to the audience, what are the basic building blocks of the race class narrative? And just to sort of, you know, show how adaptable it is, maybe talk also a little bit about how it can be applied to climate change. The race class narrative is a messaging architecture. It is a way of talking that has a very deliberate order and structure. And that order and structure is built off of years of testing what is more and less persuasive. And so first, let me talk through the structure and then let me give you an illustration of what that sounds like in language, if that's okay. Perfect. So you begin the first sentence with a shared value that explicitly names race or explicitly names any kind of difference that the right wing has been exploiting for ever and ever and ever in order to divide us and impede our progress. So you start off with say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for. In contrast to a standard leftist message, which is almost always either, boy, have I got a problem for you, this is the Titanic, or we're the losing <laughs> team, we lost recently, so you should join us, which is the way we usually like to start messages, which, by the way, is- Come lose with us. Yeah, come lose with <laughs> us. That's right. Maybe we just didn't try it succinctly that way. Maybe if we tested it as come lose with us, that would work. But so far, we have not seen a lot of efficacy out of those three hellos that the left is very keen on. So it begins with a shared value. It then moves from value second to villain. 
It names the problem that we're confronting second, not first. And it does so placing agency in a clear cause as opposed to saying things like homes were lost. The gap between rich and poor is growing. Children of color are experiencing the least qualified teachers. Or to get into your area, climate change, which has now, in our language, become personified to a degree that, quote, climate change is raising sea levels. Climate change is making the weather weird. Climate change is creating these deadly storms. Climate change is this and climate change is that. The issue with that sentence structure is that you can't actually pass a law on climate change any more than you can pass a law to make it be high tide at 10.30 a.m. You can pass laws about human behavior. And so what we find is that climate change itself, I'm sorry to digress away from RCN, I'll come back, I promise. Climate change itself has become this frozen phrase, which is unhelpfully meaningless and seems to be a causal agent instead of talking about what actually matters to people, which is air you can breathe, water you can drink, and a statement that at least implies causation like damage to the climate. Damage to the climate suggests that someone is actually doing the damaging as opposed to this thing is occurring. Right. Change is happening. (laughs) Right. As opposed to it is some sort of self-inflicted wound or climate change itself is this agent. Because what happens in that kind of phrasing, it's a little bit like talking about, you know, systems and structures. It's like there's no fucking system and structure. There are people making decisions and those people have addresses. And unless you talk about it in those terms, you don't have an organizing model because what people are supposed to like mass mobilize at systems and structures house, they're supposed to like, you know, do a Twitter storm at systemic inequality. Like there's no organizing to be done around that kind of problem definition. So step two is that it names the problem with a clear villain. And then step three, it resolves the cognitive dissonance intentionally created in that contrast between the shared value opening and the villain problem statement second. And that closing vision statement is one of cross-racial solidarity towards the kinds of outcomes that almost every single one of us desires. So what does that actually sound like? For example, no matter what we look like or where we come from, most of us want to care for our air, land, and water and leave things better off for those to come. Second sentence, but today... A handful of politicians, or but today, this person, XYZ, you know, or this Republican, or whomever the actual villain is, because it depends. Fossil fuel executive. Yeah, so I'm going there. I'm going there. (laughs) But today, a handful of politicians and the fossil fuel corporations that fund them, or the fuel CEOs that fund them, are trying to divide us from each other, hoping that if they can distract us from the fact that they are profiting off of poisoning our families will look the other way while they hold, while they put the clean energy solutions we know work out of our reach. By rejecting their lies and joining together across race, across origin, across zip code, we can make this a place that we're proud to leave our kids for generations to come, something like that. I mean, I would wordsmith it and make it shorter, but that's basically it in a nutshell. You, in the middle have to call out what the other side is doing 
and ascribe motivation to it. Otherwise, you are not guarding against the efficacy of their lies. And what they're doing is always some version of dividing us so that they can screw us. Pretty much. It's pretty much a just, you know, if they can convince you that Juan is taking your job when Juan is, in (laughs) fact, sitting in front of Home Depot trying to get some day labor and, by the way, does not possess the means to make public policy because he's denied (laughs) even the ability to vote in the country in which he lives and works and contributes. If they can convince you that Juan is taking your job, then you will not notice that, in fact, Jeff Bezos took your job. There's nothing new under the sun, right? If they can freak you out about, quote unquote, law and order or crime, or if they can make you believe that the problem is, quote unquote, those people who just don't want to work or those people who just don't come in the right way or those people who just won't teach their children the right thing, then you can be made to hate and resent government and to be against collective solutions because your understanding of government is as an evil force that takes away from quote unquote hardworking people who are coded mm-hmm. as white and gives it away to profligate people who are coded as black and brown. And then you resent them and you don't like the government and you're willing to vote against it. And everything is some sort of big government socialist program that is evil and taking away your freedom. It's kind of, I mean, it's sort of hilarious that they've been at this anti-government thing for so long now that sort of like government spending is self-evidently bad in their world. Government regulation is self-evidently bad in their world. And that's like, that's what governments do. That, that pretty much covers the waterfront. So <laughs> government doing what governments do now is like sort of self-evident evidence that something nefarious is afoot on the right. Completely. And that somehow... Government acting, having collective action is somehow an abrogation of your freedom. When in point of fact, I don't know about you, but when I go to a restaurant, I'm not really keen to be on the hook for deciding whether or not the kitchen is full of salmonella. Like, I don't know much about that. I would like when I enter a building for the roof to be load bearing. I know absolutely nothing about how you check that. I just like to have it happen. When I flush the toilet, I'd like the stuff to go away. So partly it's been on us. I mean, one of the other messaging mistakes that I point out frequently is that we like to sell the recipe instead of the brownie. So we Mm. like to have our policies be our message. And that is a very bad idea. People like paid family leave, don't mistake me, but you know what they like even better? When we say you're there the first time your newborn smiles. They like clean energy, but you know what they like even better? You can feel great about the water you drink and the air you breathe. We have to sell things in terms of the payoff in language that gets at the lived experience of being inside of that better policy. Let's talk a little bit more about some of your work you've done on climate messaging. I, one of the things I, f- I found really interesting is what you found out about the Green New Deal. So tell us what results popped up when you tested that. Yeah. And I say this gingerly because of the point that I made earlier, which is, again, I really do believe that it's not the job of a good message to say what's popular. It's the job of a good message to make popular what we need said. And so to the extent that the left could make the Green New Deal a thing, it's important to have an undergirding, galvanizing slogan that is central and so on. What we have seen in the research that said is that 
at least the last time we tested it, Green New Deal is not a particularly effective thing to say. And that is ironically because it doesn't signal to people just the name of it without knowing other details, which most people do not. And most people are never going to know more details than that because most people do not have the bandwidth to be paying attention to that degree. It signals like not that ambitious, not that much. A deal is a bargain. It doesn't sort of tell people your life is going to be better Hmm. as a phrase. It's hard not to draw the comparison here to, to critical race theory. Again, like critical race theory to most people was an empty phrase. Completely. And they and they introduced it with the explicit goal of filling in that phrase with everything that made parents nervous or anxious, right? I mean, th- almost the emptiness of it at the beginning was almost part of the point because they could just they could paint whatever they wanted into it, and then you could imagine the same thing happening with Green New Deal, right? We 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 introduced this sort of empty phrase and then the entire left mobilizes to fill it in with everything good that people associate with clean water and all, all the rest of it. But instead, we introduced this phrase and instead of filling it in, like the right filled it in yep. and the left poll tested it and found that it wasn't already filled in. So they retreated (laughs) from it. So like the right did the critical race theory thing to it too. And it just seems like that's until we figure out how to do that. I mean, I always thought the Green New Deal was incredibly powerful because it was mostly empty at the beginning and because it could have just been associated with all the positive things we want to put in this new world. But we just don't. We just didn't have the the wherewithal, the institutions, the mentality. Like it's just such a telling contrast. Those two cases completely. And and hopefully you're you were just making a more succinct articulation of what I was trying to say, which is that if you have a vessel and there's some utility to that vessel, then yes, it should be your job to fill in that vessel for people. I was simply reporting to you that at present. <laughs> People's evaluation of the vessel, that was not uh, um, do this, don't do that. I was delivering information. Yeah, it's not it's not filled in yet. I think we can. Yes. Or uh, filled in mostly negative. So the choices are, do you say this is enough of a vessel? There is enough sort of agreement among organizations, institutions, politicians, et cetera, on the left that this is our boat and we're in it. So we better make it the nicest possible boat. In which case, yeah, let's do it and let's be very clear and good about instead of selling the recipe, selling the brownie, instead of selling the names of policies, actually selling the outcomes, which is a big part of the problem in the way that the Green New Deal has been described. It's been very much taking your policy out in public, which is unseemly, should not be done. That's not the message. (laughs) Or you can say... No, we need a vessel that is more sort of clearly positive, which just to give you a sort of shot in the dark out there illustration would be saying something like Freedom to Thrive Act. This is the Freedom to Thrive Act, which at least suggests to people, oh, that sounds like a thing that I want. (laughs) I like thriving. Right. I like thriving. I like freedom. Freedom is a value that's very, very closely associated with the U.S. That is true across demographic groups when you ask respondents, what value do you most closely associate with the U.S.? Across the board, without exception, the number one thing named is freedom. And that is a value that the right wing has claimed as their own for a very, very long time, when in point of fact, 
It is a deeply contested concept. Freedom, of course, core to marriage equality, the freedom to marry, core to the civil rights movement, core to the women's movement. There's a lot in freedom that is very, very much a progressive idea. And not for nothing, the renamed bill is freedom to vote. And that was a very deliberate choice. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, getting back to these core narratives, one of the right elements of the rights core narrative is negative liberty, basically, is that freedom means people will leave you alone. Freedom means fewer rules, fewer restraints, always. And there's this other side of freedom, this other way of looking at freedom, which is by taking collective action, right, and structuring markets or societies in certain ways, we enable people to have things they otherwise wouldn't have been able to have. So they have the freedom to get a good education. Like a good education provides you a certain kind of freedom, but it's a positive freedom. It's a freedom of opportunities and new, you know, new opportunities, not just people leaving you alone. And in fact, in this project that we just wrapped up looking at how to make a full-throated positive case for public education soup to nuts in the era of this anti-CRT nonsense, The name of our messaging guide is Freedom to Learn, because one of the things that popped up as most potent and effective, besides saying most of us believe that our children should be taught the truth of our history, the good and bad, so they can reckon with the mistakes of our past, understand our present, and create a better future. Do do most of us us believe that? Yeah. In fact, around 80% of people do. Mm, I guess the the other percent are loud. That's exactly what's going on. But but what I was going to say is that freedom to learn, this idea that our kids deserve the freedom to learn who they are, where they're going, where they've come from, is very powerful. And it is an effective rejoinder to this anti-CRT thing. The thing that you just said, do most of us, what the right does so incredibly well is avail themselves of one of arguably the most persuasive things that anyone has in their arsenal, which is social proof. Yes. Yeah. So it looks to us, or it looks to kind of the average person who is not paying attention to political details when they turn on their local news and they see a bunch of parents yelling and screaming at a school board, ha, I guess people who look like me, who have kids that are kind of sort of like mine, think this way, when in point of fact, both in our polling and in all of the publicly released polling, 80% of parents, 83% of parents, 85% of parents, it depends which poll, actually, when you ask them, they want kids to be taught the truth, the good and bad of history, they don't want books censored, they don't support these things. It is not a popular position. But what the right does is they don't care what is popular. They understand that the job of the message is to keep their base engaged and enraged, because as long as that base, even if it is only 15%, 12%, 20%, it depends on the issue, is yelling and screaming, then that is what is persuasive to the middle, because the middle is reading social cues to understand what is common sense and how does the world work. And meanwhile, parents on the left, the vast majority of whom actually do support a clear, honest, race-forward, inclusive public education curriculum, they're not out there saying anything. Yes, I just think this is such an important point, and I just really feel like the left, especially left leadership, really, especially Democratic leadership, really doesn't get this. Like, I I think a lot of people don't know that if you look at polls from like the early 1960s, 
you find that most people were fine with equality. Like most people thought that racism was bad. Most people were ready for the civil rights act. Like the poll, just in terms of mass opinion, it was in the right place. But everybody thought that everybody else was still racist, right? Like everybody thought that they were kind of the exception or the minority. And so how do you how do they find out that they're not? How do they find out that they actually have the majority view? It requires someone standing up and yelling. And so this technique on the right or this this will on the right to suppress any of that, to suppress the people who actually are in the majority from standing up and yelling and signaling to one another, they can keep minority opinions in place. Look at the civil rights movement. It was decades, I think. It was decades that the American public was basically ready for civil rights and the right basically prevented them from finding out that everybody else was too. And it's a, you know, you can see that happening now too. I bet it's the same on climate change. You know, if you get people in isolation and ask them, should we go for it? Should we clean everything up? Most people will say yes, but they're just not, that's just not who they see yelling when they turn on their TV. I just think that's so important. It's absolutely the case that we are not just creatures who are driven by emotion. We are creatures who are driven deeply in our political beliefs by our identity and our desire yes. to preserve, protect, maintain identity. And so we are constantly reading in our environment social cues that tell us what does a my kind of person think. So let me tell right. take a very specific case. It is common and frequent for folks on the left to do a lot of hand-wringing and to verbalize, oh, you know, XYZ demographic group aren't voting, young people aren't voting, Latinos aren't voting, you know, African-American turnout is down. We can see through experimentation, this is not self-reporting, that when you send the message to demographic groups, your demographic group isn't voting, it lowers voting. Similarly, talking about vaccine refusal increases vaccine refusal. That's such a like... I don't even know what the right analogy. What's the the thumb trap or or, well, like the <laughs> or finger, yeah. whatever you know? Like the harder you try to get out of the trap, the more you're in it. Like, and this is something also like if you just watch what consumes political dialogue on a day to day level, it's constantly the right acting, accusing, establishing things, and constantly the left. Talking about what the right is saying, you know, fact, fact checking yep. it, refuting it, whatever, but talking about it constantly. Yeah. So it's what gets talked about. My standard joke is that if the left had written the story of David, it would be a biography of Goliath because we like to talk about <laughs> our opposition all fucking day. And then we're like, oh, why don't people want to be motivated? Because the truth of the matter is, the thing that we see in test after test after test after test is that, believe it or not, our opposition is actually not the opposition. It's cynicism. It's not that people don't think our ideas are right. It's that they don't think our ideas are possible. And so why bother even trying? And when we speak relentlessly about our opposition, talking about Trump in 2016 is how we got Trump. Oh, what a nightmarish thought that is. We, con we conjured him into the presidency through our fear. At the risk of like going all woo-woo Bay Area on you, <laughs> when you take your kid to a pool 
and your kid is running, a competent lifeguard will yell walk because if you yell don't run at a kid, they will run either out of defiance or because you literally just yelled run at them. And so at its core, like the core messaging lesson, when I do presentations, like you forget everything else that happened today. I just want you to remember one thing. Say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for, say what you're for. We have to tell people what we want them to do and stop telling them what we don't want them to do. We have to yell walk, not yell don't run. And in the climate space, I know, for example, from my work in Australia, one of the things that just like makes them livid is that when Australians are asked what proportion of GDP, what percentage of jobs do you think are in the coal industry, it's something like 0.01%. I don't know the exact number. It's nothing, right? It's it's like- Same here. Same even in West Virginia. Completely. But when the average Australian is asked, you know, if you had to take a guess, like what proportion of jobs do you think are in coal? People guess anywhere from like 5% to 20%. And I would guess mm-hmm. that if you asked Americans, it would be the same. They would mm-hmm. wildly overestimate how many jobs in our economy are in the coal industry. And so why is that? It's because we talk about coal all the fucking time. (laughs) We talk about coal every goddamn day. So it is no wonder that people routinely overestimate its centrality, importance, size, you know, contribution, number of jobs. This is a little sticky, though, because one of the big things that especially um, lefties who view themselves as virtuous in the climate space, talk about a lot is a transition for coal workers. And I think they think by making that a common point of discussion, they are signaling their good intentions and their virtue and that it's safe for coal workers to embrace this, blah, blah, blah. But I worry that we're having the effect that you're describing, which is vastly overstating the significance and number of coal workers in the world and just making the transition more difficult because now you've got everybody thinking about this beleaguered group that's going to get ground up by the transition and overestimating their their size, etc. Like how do you how do you navigate that? The way that you navigate that is by having more of an overarching message that and I'm, you know, wordsmithing it on the fly, so forgive me, it's not going to be copy edited, but It would be something like, whether we're black or white, rural or urban, young or old, we all want to be able to care for our families, do work that we're proud of that leaves things better for those to come. But today, a handful of politicians and, you know, the fossil fuel CEOs that fund them want to keep people tied to a wage they can't live on and a job that is hurting their families, our air and our water. By joining together to demand both clean, reliable energy that's homegrown, made from the wind and the sun, and jobs for any and every person, you know, for for people coming from any industry, we can make this a place, like, you just do it like that, more broad strokes, instead of zeroing in on, we're going to specifically rescue you from the coal mine, which does reinforce this idea that we're talking about, you know, a million people or several million people and we're not. Right. I've kept you a long time, but I want to get to uh, popularism before we're done. So uh, just for our listeners who are not familiar with this debate, first, you should just be grateful. But (laughs) 
but now, now, now I'm going to force you to tune into this. So the idea here behind popularism is that basically the, the commanding heights of the Democratic Party of the left have been overtaken by young, educated, urban liberals. But the bulk of Democratic voters are still white men, are still non-college educated white men. That's still the majority. Yeah. And the idea is all these effete urban liberals are pushing organizations to message and talk in a way that flatters their worldviews and their sensibilities, you know, and, and they cite defund the police and et cetera, et cetera, all these sort of policies that only resonate among that crowd, but do not resonate among the non-college educated white men that Dems still need to win. So the idea, I think, is Dems need to readjust their messaging to appeal to the great, not particularly progressive, uh, non-college educated white masses the way that used to be very in vogue. You know, with Clinton, that was Clinton's whole thing. And Obama, to some extent, too. This is an argument the popularists make that I do think has some merit, which is that Obama really did go overboard in almost every case to at least rhetorically check that box, to acknowledge the worldview and fears and sensibilities of non-college educated white people, even as he was pushing for liberal progress. And now the idea is now that sort of all the messaging organs have been taken over by these educated liberals and they're out of touch with the masses. And that's why the masses are turning to Trump or tuning out. And so we're going to end up with a sort of entirely urban educated demographic which, because of the various distortions of the American constitution and governmental system, are all clustered in cities and cannot form majorities. So basically, the left is screwing itself over time. And the idea, I think, the sort of background idea is you want to be tuning your message to the sensibilities of the bulk of your audience. And we're not doing that right now, and we should do that. So what's your take on all that? Oh, boy. It's a lot. So first of all, have you ever taken the um, New York Times guess my political ideology quiz? <laughs> no, not yet. I okay. have not. But you know what I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. So when you take that quiz, if you tell the quiz, the first question it asks you is your race. And if you tell the quiz that you're white, the second question that it asks you, do you want to guess what it is? It's trying to figure out political ideology. So the second question, it's taking you through essentially a decision tree, right? What's the second question you think it asks? I would think it would be about education. But you'd be wrong, because in point of fact, education is not the strongest predictor of political ideology. Wait, wait, second guess. What is the population density where you live? Do you live in a city or a suburb or rural area? Good guess. It's religion. It's religiosity. Ah. If we want to operate in a simplified world where we only look at people as two variables, or we only look at white people as one variable, which is a silly thing to do, the most determinative single variable is not education level, it's religion. So first of all, this idea of education polarization as the most meaningful data point is false, like demonstrably false, not true. 
I mean, there's some veracity to it. Obviously, there we're talking about tendencies, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're trying to reduce a massive population, which is white people or white men, then the way to cut through it, if you're only making one cut, is whether or not they're evangelical. So that's the first thing. Hmm. The second thing is that what the popularists fail to understand is what we spoke about earlier, which is that politics is not solitaire. And if we choose to be silent about race, we choose to be silent about police, we choose to be silent about immigration, we choose to be silent about all of these things that are purportedly anathema for us to talk about, that doesn't mean those conversations go away. Mm. It means that the only thing our voters hear is the unrelenting race baiting of the other side, which means that our economic promises cannot actually cut through. Because again, and we've seen this over and over and over again, when we go to our voters and we say, you know, I'm going to increase your wages, you're going to be better working conditions. The voter has just been canvassed two hours earlier by some right winger saying, Juan is taking your job, or mm. you can't even drive into the city because it's too dangerous and you're going to be murdered and there's crime. And so our economic promises have no ability to break through and penetrate because the right wing is engaged in this unrelenting scapegoating and fear mongering. And if our messages are not attending to that, they don't work. Number three, <laughs> let's take Obama as an example. And let's take more specifically his attempts to appease these very, very frightened, anxious white people, these these purportedly non-college white people, by deporting more people than any previous president, right? Mm -hmm. And using the discourse of getting tough on the border and cracking down and deporting and deporting and deporting and deporting and deporting and deporting, which I'm just stating facts. That is what occurred. It's not a message. That is what happened. People still, Republicans still called him still said that he was for open borders, still said that he was, you know, creating this entire ethos and era. Obama himself said that he had to be tough on the border. He had to crack down. He had to deport, that he had to be this, same with Clinton, you know, Clinton cracking down on welfare. This idea that you have to genuflect at the altar of the terms that the right puts on. And worse, that policy is the right way to respond as though policy will change the rhetoric, as though policy will change the discussion. I mean, that was one of the first political posts I ever wrote in my entire life was yelling at Obama about this. I was like, you can change policy all you want, but people's political opinions are only tenuously connected to policy realities, if at all. 100%. That's just not the lever. That's not the lever. If you want to pull... If you want to change politics, you don't pull the policy lever, you pull the politics lever. Completely. You, you do politics. Yeah. And, you know, how else do you explain that the former senator from MasterCard, who is now our president, is, quote unquote, a socialist? How do you explain that Chuck Schumer purportedly wants to defund the police, right? So the point is that regardless <laughs> of what Democrats actually say and do, People's opinions of Democrats is not made, to take it back to our very beginning of the conversation, is not made out of what Democrats say. It is made largely out of what Republicans pillory them with. And so how would it possibly be the case 
that public opinion about what someone stands for and does would actually just be made out of what they said. That would be great, but that is not the reality. And so the entire theory, the entire idea is a house of cards. It exists only inside of the rarefied environment, like you said earlier, of a survey. It doesn't stand up to the real world. And then finally, I forgot what point I'm on, because actually I could make 67 (laughs) other points. This is just so deeply absurd. I mean, it really is as facile as your financial advisor, this is my friend James noted this, saying to you, you know, you should make more money and spend less money. Like how? Yeah, I would go with better more profitable investments yeah, like, rather than the money losing Yeah, ones. like how is this a theory? You should do popular <laughs> things. Like, thank you very much. That is very deep thoughts with Jack Handy. Like, wh- <laughs> excuse me. Like, that's... It seems to me it, it involves the implicit admission that Democrats are powerless to change what is popular, right? Number I one, mean- <laughs> and that somehow people's opinion of Democrats is made out of what Democrats say and do, again, which it isn't. And then number, whatever number I'm on, (laughs) again, going back to our earlier conversation, if your words don't spread, they don't work. And the fact of the matter is that a democratic base is largely people of color. And if we are not attending to issues of racial justice, if we are not attending to issues of climate, if we are not attending to issues of women's rights, of immigrant rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we have a mobilization problem and we have people not turning out. Something people do not realize is that Biden won 2016 voters by around 1.52% margin. He won 2020 first-time voters by 12 points. Mm. It matters to turn out new people. Those voters that turned out in 2018 and 2020 in those unprecedented turnout elections, I call them vital voters. That's it. If we are going to hold on in 22, our only hope is to engage in what I call return out. It is to get those people back. Mm -hmm. And the way that we get those people back is speaking authentically and full-throatedly to the things that they care about in their daily life. And for a democratic base, that means that they should be able to wander through their neighborhood and make it home without worrying whether or not the police are going to decide to kill them. If we are not standing for people's basic human rights, then why would they turn out to vote for us? Well, also, I just am trying to imagine the sort of paradigmatic, non-college educated, white, exurban man who is going to vote against Democrats, but then you know, Joe Biden says something implicitly racist and the white guy says, hey, well, he seems like a guy like me. I'm going to vote for him instead. I just I just am having trouble envisioning this swingable group of voters in the middle that are going to respond to signals like this as, you know, relative to how they respond to economic conditions or, you know, big forces. I have trouble seeing these messaging tweaks having the sort of large-scale effects that the popularists seem to think they will. Completely. And again, they're testing these things inside of this fake thing where you're paying people for their attention. And they're not actually attending to the fact that 
if you can't get your base to carry that message, right? So for years and years, let's take a concrete example. For years and years, there was this advice that we should talk about raising wages in terms of we should raise wages because we have a consumer driven economy and people need money so they can be customers in our stores, right? Or hard work should be rewarded. We can't survive on 725. The issue with both of those narratives is that they eclipse from view the fact that the money to pay people comes from their work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come from the magical money pants of the quote unquote job <laughs> creators, which is a term that was deliberately selected in order to mirror that, you know, biblical creator uh. who may or may not reside in the sky. So this language that you know, we should pay people more so they can be customers in our stores, which is language that was created in order to make us seem like the reasonable people in the room, right? The adults in the room who like get things and are practical and are not asking for outlandish things and blah, blah, blah. I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning being like, I'm going to check on the GDP. I'm just really passionate about economic (laughs) growth. And I'm super excited to go take to the streets to march for the GDP. People aren't going to go and sort of act on behalf of that. When instead, the messaging was the fight for 15, and the message swapped to people who work for a living ought to earn a living, Mm. which is a fairness frame, it's a moral high ground. People would go strike and march on behalf of that. They would not march and strike on behalf of this will increase GDP growth. Yes, or bend the cost curve. Right, Uh, exactly. um, I've kept you too long, so let's wrap up with a final question. Um, I, these days, find mid to long-term hope for U.S. politics difficult to come by. (laughs) I just sent out today a rather apocalyptic post, which I edited several times to be less apocalyptic. So by way of preventing me from sinking further into the doldrums, tell me, do you think that the better approach to messaging that you're taking with the sort of better research and um, more proactive, aggressive mindset, is that catching on? Like are young people, are young activists, are young groups getting better about this? Because if there's one thing we've learned over the last few years is that the democratic old guard, the existing democratic leadership, uh, whose average age is 137, are not... are not that. They're not on it. They're not up to date. They seem completely at at sea in the modern information environment. Is there a young vanguard coming up that's better at this? Yeah, absolutely. You see them on your TV. They're called the squad. Um, (laughs) There are definitely folks who are much better and who are making an impassioned, full-throated case for legitimate multiracial democracy, you know, a livable future, everything else, the whole list. But, you know, I self-identify as pathologically optimistic. I have to be optimistic (laughs) in order to do my job. I literally cannot do my job unless I'm optimistic. I have no choice, right? I have to believe that something else is possible. I am also deeply, deeply in a dark place, mostly because the whole fascism, like what the GOP learned from 2020 was that it was far too easy for people of color to vote and far too hard for them to cheat. And so they've set about fixing both of those, quote, problems. And Democrats seem to sort of just be 
pearl clutching and you know finger wagging in response. De- deer in headlights. Can yeah, you be a like, deer in headlights for four solid years? Yeah. Apparently, yes. I mean, unless we can actually still have elections in which everyone could potentially vote and all of those votes could potentially be counted, I'm not really sure how we do everything else. <laughs> but that said, yes. There are people who are doing much better. Yes, there is greater sophistication. There are people who are being more thoughtful and deliberate about engaging the base, understanding that that is, in fact, the way that you persuade the middle, that even if your only aim was to get white people in Midwestern diners to flip, still the way that you would do it would be to engage the base, because in point of fact, social proof is real. Right. And we know that what moves white people in Midwestern diners is actually seeing other white people out marching, for example, Mm. during the summer of protest after George Floyd's Yeah, the Women's March was so powerful in that exact respect. Yeah, people's minds change when they're like, oh, people who look like me think this. Okay, I guess I think this. Cool. But I think, you know, the main thing is what I said before, these vital voters, that's my name for them, the surge 1820, that is what distinguishes 2022 from every previous time that we've been in a midterm in which, spoiler alert, the incumbent pretty much without exception Mm -hmm. keeps shellacking. But this time around, what is different is that we have just come off of two cycles in which we mobilized an enormous number of new people and got them to the polls. And so it is a an arguably easier lift because it is not turnout, it is returnout. And we have a lot of hard evidence of what did it. And so we just simply need to recreate it. Well, what about, sorry to drag this up forever, but this this issue in particular, you you see a debate now in democratic circles, one side saying, Our election messaging in 2022 and beyond needs to be about the concrete changes that Democrats have made that made your life better. Our kitchen table, our fucking kitchen. I'm so sick of hearing about the kitchen table. The kitchen table issues, right? What we do for you, not why they're bad. And then the other side says, you know, the fact that the other side is explicitly right out in the open planning to steal the fucking election seems relevant And that is something we ought to convey to voters because for the vast majority of them, they don't know. Even though it's happening right out in the open, it's this social proof again. I can totally understand the average voter looking out and saying, you know, this stuff seems kind of funny that they seem to be sort of openly talking about stocking, you know, putting election officials in place that are willing to steal the thing for Trump. It seems bad, but I don't see other people freaking out. Right. So I guess I'm not supposed to freak out. So, you know, the the other side of the messaging fight would be people need the social proof that, yes, this is a freaky, bad, apocalyptic thing coming down on us and they need to see that it's OK to freak out about it. So this is the quintessential messaging debate of 22 and 2024, I expect. Yeah. So, so where do you come down on that? It definitely is. So first of all, I think it's just real talk, going to be very, very, very hard to sell a top line message, which is Democrats delivered for you and like aren't Democrats lovely. Reality does have, does constrain your message somewhat. That's tough. Unless we come back in 22 and like 
we're in a completely different reality, which, hey, I would take, right? I would mm. love that. Maybe they have some deep thoughts and reflection over the new year and they come back and they actually pass things like that'd be cool. Yes, I'm aware of the filibuster and yes, I'm aware of the 60 and I know all of the things. So I'm preemptively striking against that. Whatever. People view Democrats as being in the majority and that is the level of detail that they understand the end. Yep. So first, it's very, very hard to sell a like Democrats delivered for you message. Right now, what we are seeing in nightly focus groups, like weekly testing, we're testing stuff all of the time, is basically a plague on both your houses, like all useless, you know, there's no good here politics, like I'm just going to look away from it. And guess who that serves? Yeah, deeply, deeply disengaging, et cetera, et cetera, all the things. So the message that I suspect, and and it's a little bit of both, and this is the distinction that I want to draw. First of all, can't make Democrats the protagonists, have to make voters the protagonists. Always you want to talk to people about what you want them to do, not about what the candidate or the party or whatever. And so in 18 and 20, in 2020, you turned out as vital voters to defend our democracy and move us forward together. And yeah, you can do a shout out. And that means we lifted blah, 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 kids out of poverty and we delivered these stimulus checks and we did blah, 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 whatever you can lift up. But make it the accomplishment of the voter, the audience that you're targeting and say, now you are going to do it again. The message that they used, for example, in the Georgia runoff, hot off the heels of Georgia swinging in 2020, you know, they had a runoff in January Mm -hmm. and they said, our work is not done yet. That is what they said to their voters. Our work is not done yet. Like you did this historic thing. You're the reason you delivered and you're going to do it again. Right. Obviously, it was also about Warnock and Ossoff and Mitch Better Have My Money. But even Mitch Better Have My Money is a voter agency message. It's saying you have the power here and you're going to make this happen. So first of all, voter, voter, voter is the protagonist. And then with respect to the shitty, terrible things that we say about these shitty, terrible people, I'm calling them people because I don't have evidence to the contrary. (laughs) They say that they are. Um, I'm assuming they're carbon based. I don't know is inspiring defiance instead of fear. So that's the distinction I want to draw on the negative side. It's really, really important that we not give in to fear-based messaging, but rather have the negative emotion that we evoke be anger and defiance because fear is an inhibiting emotion in most people. It evokes fight or freeze, but for the majority of people, it's freeze, not fight. Right. And it only evokes fight in people who are already activists, right. not in people who need to engage. So what is the difference between fear and defiance? That's the difference between saying, if Republicans are in power, like it's going to unleash a new wave of COVID, you're going to get sick, you're going to die, like fuck, holy shit, right? To, to get technical about the mess. <laughs> Or, you know, Republicans are going to like create these armed insurrections and they're going to come with militias like fear, fear, fear to a message that says if Republicans think they're going to silence our voices and block our votes, they got another thing coming. We showed up and we showed out in 2020 and we're going to do it again. Not on our watch, not in our state, not in our country, like back the fuck up. That's the distinction. Right. Well, uh, your lips to, you know, their ears, I guess. Let's hope. 
Um, thank you so much for coming on and taking all this time. This is, it's so incredibly relevant right now, like communicating well, I mean, it's always important in politics, but we just really seem like at a juncture where it's so vital and being done so poorly, so many places. So thank you and, um, good luck with your work. And, uh, we will probably, uh, chat again sometime. Maybe we'll reconnect in a year or two and see how we can message about uh, the wreckage. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, I mean the surprise victory. Exactly. Exactly. You have to manifest. You have to. <laughs> right. Your... Positive thinking. Yes. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Anand. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad free powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.